that others may be preferred to me in all things, except in your divine love. This we pray through Christ our Lord. There was once a burglar who broke into a house at night time and he broke into the kitchen, smashed his way through a window and landed in the kitchen. And as he landed through the door, he heard a voice say to him, Jesus is watching you. And he looked around, couldn't see anything in the dark, thought it must be his imagination, carried on. And as he started to root around the kitchen, the burglar again heard a voice say, Jesus is watching you. And again, he looks around and is confused, thinks his mind is playing tricks on him, can't see anything. So carries on going on about his business. And then a third time, he hears a voice say, Jesus is watching you. And this time he takes the risk. He turns on his torch and he shines it around the kitchen. And in the corner of the kitchen, he sees a parrot. And as the parrot is lit up, it says again, Jesus is watching you. And the burglar is so relieved, he starts to laugh. And he says, well, look at you, little fellow, talking so wisely, what's your name then? And the parrot said, I'm called Eric. And the burglar said, Eric? That's a bit of a stupid name for a parrot. Who was the idiot that named you Eric? And the parrot said, the same idiot who named the Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> the truth is that God is watching us, that Jesus does see us, that all things that we do are witnessed by God, and there is nothing that escapes his attention. Remember that there are always two witnesses to everything you do in life yourself and Almighty God. Everything you do, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, the two witnesses to everything that happens in your life, yourself and God. So God sees everything we do. Jesus is indeed watching over us. Now, this is actually a consolation, so that when we try to do something good, when we try to help others, when we try to lead a Christian life, we know that God is watching, God is seeing this. And so really it's a consolation. But if there is something that we do wrong, if there is a sin that we commit, then perhaps knowing that God sees everything can give us pause for thought. Because God desires us to come home. God wants us to get to heaven. God wants us to become saints. That's our task, that's our duty, and eventually our joy. But it's not easy. And so God is there in our lives to support us. In Vienna, in Austria, there is a church in which the Habsburg family are buried. In the centre of Vienna, there's a church where when the former ruling family of Austria, the Habsburgs, when they die, they're buried there. And in times past, when former royal funeral, funerals used to arrive, the mourners would knock at the door of the church and the door would be slammed in their face 
and a priest inside would call out, who is it that desires admission to this place? And a guard would call out, his apostolic majesty, serene highness, the emperor. And the priest from inside would answer, I do not know him. Then they would knock a second time. And again, the priest would ask, who is there? And the funeral guard again would answer, the highest emperor. A second time, the priest would say, I do not know him. And then a third time, they would knock at the door and the priest would ask again, who is there? And the third time, the answer would be, a poor sinner, your brother. And the door would be opened. The progression of questions and answers in Vienna shows the progression to humility, a progression that each of us needs to take to heart, but one that we heard about tonight in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In each of us, there's a little bit of the Pharisee, the person puffed up with pride, the person that thinks they're perfect and they're fine and they don't need to change. But also, hopefully, within each of us is some of the humility of the tax collector, knowing that we are indeed a sinner. Each of us, to a greater or lesser degree, is called by Jesus to make this journey from pride to humility. In a sense, the Pharisee standing there in the temple thought that he was God. He was great. He was perfect. He could stand there and proclaim his virtues. But the trouble is, if you think you're God, then you need leave no space for the real God, for the true God, for the God who loves you. That's why in the parable, the humble tax collector who asked God for mercy, went home at rights with God, and the proud Pharisee does not. If we are not sensitive to other people, then we're not going to be sensitive to God either. Think how rude the Pharisee was in what he was saying. He even pointed at the tax collector and saying, thank God I'm not like him. He must have known the poor man would hear what he was saying, and yet the Pharisee in his pride took no attention of the feelings of this other man. He was okay. He didn't care about the other person. But the tax collector was sensitive to his own failings and his own weakness, and so sensitive to his need of mercy. St. John Paul II said, the proud cannot bring themselves to hold out empty hands to God. They insist on offering virtues, good works, self-denials, anything in order to have nothing. They want to be beautiful for him from their own resources, whereas we are only truly beautiful when God looks at us and makes us beautiful. God cannot give himself to us unless our hands are empty to receive him. The deepest reason why so few, few people become saints is that we're not willing to be loved. Isn't that astonishing?
St. John Paul, the deepest reason so few people become saints is they're not willing to be loved. The Royal Habsburg family in Austria were only allowed into the church when they admitted that this poor man was a sinner. And so each of us is called to make that same journey from going like the Pharisee, from standing there saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like the rest of humanity, and especially not like this terrible, awful person here, to arrive at the point where we can say with all our heart, like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, St. John Paul II, he said this, when we lose our sense of sin, we lose our need of forgiveness. When we lose our need of forgiveness, we lose our need of a redeemer. And if we lose our need of a redeemer, we lose Jesus Christ. And if we lose Jesus Christ, we have lost everything. So if we lose our sense of sin, we lose our sense of needing Jesus, of needing a Redeemer. How can we explain what Christ did for us upon the cross if we don't recognise that we're sinners, that we need redemption, that we need forgiveness? Remember, that's something we hear every time Mass is celebrated, when the chalice is consecrated. We hear that this is the blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now the Lord warns us time and again in Scripture about the dangers of not changing our lives, of not recognising that we're sinners, of not coming back to him. Remember that we talk about the good news of the Gospel, and that's wonderful, we should, the good news. but. There's also bad news. But we tend to avoid that bit today. Something that happens so often, perhaps, in parish communities even. I'm sure not here, but in some parish communities. We tend to avoid the bad news. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to hurt them. And that is a good thing. Not wanting to hurt somebody is a good thing. But how can we talk about Christ as our Redeemer? How can we talk about forgiveness of sins, which is why he died upon the cross, if we don't first recognise that we're sinners, all of us? And the worst sinner in this church is talking to you now. All of us are in need of God's mercy. That's what the cross of Christ is about. And we have to take that seriously. In Scripture, in the Gospels, time and time again, our Lord warns us about the dangers of not turning to him, the dangers of not asking for forgiveness. And yet in Scripture, again, sometimes we like to avoid the difficult bits. Sometimes when people choose a piece of Scripture, they'll choose the bit they like, say verse 24, but let's just forget about verse 25. I'm not too sure about that. It's not the fullness of the gospel. It's not the good news. 
if we don't reflect that there's also bad news. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps for a lot of people, the most beautiful bit of the Gospels, when our Lord tells us that we're truly blessed. Blessed are you who are humble. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. It's a beautiful piece of scripture. And yet, in that very same sermon, Jesus warns us about the reality of hell. In that very same sermon, in that sermon where he tells us that beautiful message of truly being blessed in him, he also goes on to warn us about the reality of hell. And Jesus contrasts hell with the kingdom of heaven and warns us that there's a real danger we could end up there. After he has described the blessed, he then goes on to say, you have heard it said, but I say this to you. And so he challenges us to turn to him, to say yes to being loved and say no to the danger of hell. As Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, again he contrasts the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, with the broad road that leads to hell. And he tells us that hell awaits everyone who does not enter the kingdom of heaven. There are two options when we leave this life. And God, in his kindness and wisdom, presents those two options to us. And we get to choose. God will respect our choices. In a sense, God is the perfect gentleman. He will respect the choices we make in this life. Because remember, how we live here and now will echo for eternity. How we choose to live now is what will echo forever. God respects our choices, but he wants us to choose love. To illustrate this, let me tell you about a philosopher called Kolakowski. Now, Kolakowski was an unusual man of letters. He was, as a young man, a fierce critic of the church. He was a leading Marxist philosopher in Poland until he asked too many awkward questions about Stalin and he had to escape to the West. As he lived in the West, he grew in his life as a philosopher and he eventually became a fan of St. John Paul II, who was also perhaps one of the greatest scholars of the 20th century. Exactly 30 years ago, this man, Kolakowski, gave a lecture at Harvard entitled The Devil in History. Now, early on in the talk, it's said that the mood in the lecture theatre changed dramatically, because in this lecture theatre in Harvard, all of these intellectuals and academics are gathered to hear this great philosopher, and they're expecting to hear something along the lines of their academic research or of their own intellectual insecurities, perhaps, their own bigotries. And yet, he talked about the devil. He told them in that lecture theatre that the devil is real. And they were baffled. How could this man, this great philosopher, this great intellect, truly believe in the devil? And yet, he spoke to them for more than an hour about what they considered perhaps religious nonsense, but what we would talk about as the devil and original sin. 
and he talked about it for a long time. A few of the things he said. He told his audience that the devil is part of our experience and our generation has seen enough of it for the message to be taken extremely seriously. Evil is continuous throughout human experience. The point is not how to make one immune to it, but under what conditions we can identify and restrain the devil. For Kolakowski, he could see that we can't fully understand our need of God unless we take the devil seriously. The devil and evil are constant in human history, in the struggles then of every human soul. And Kolakowski, unlike, I'm sad to say, some leaders within our own church, would never use the devil as a metaphor or as a symbol of the darkness in the world. If somebody tries to say to you that the devil is just a fairy story to make you scared, well, I'm afraid they're lying. And worse than that, they're calling Jesus a liar. Because in the Gospels, our Lord warns us time and time again about the evil one, about the father of lies, the one who doesn't want you to be loved, the one who wants you to be so puffed up with pride that you can't see your need of love. That's why our faith, that's why an encounter with Christ is so important. It's a struggle for your soul. Our adversary in this is the devil. And of course, the devil is not God's equal, and he's doomed to defeat, but he can do a lot of harm on his way there. The first Christians knew this. Read the letters of St. Paul, but more than that, read the Gospels. Our Lord talks about this so clearly. And yet, in this oh-so-clever and oh-so-wise modern world, it's hard to believe in the devil. The modern world makes it hard to believe that the devil exists. But it treats Jesus Christ in the same way. And that's the point. Medieval theologians understood this quite well. They had an expression in Latin, nullus diabolos, nullus redemptor. No devil, no redeemer. Without the devil, what need do we have of a redeemer? Without sin, what need is there of Jesus Christ for him to suffer and die for us on the cross? What exactly does he redeem us from if it's not the devil and sin? We do proclaim the good news and we should live the good news because there is bad news. The devil more than anyone appreciates this irony that we can't fully understand the mission of Jesus without acknowledging him. And he exploits this to full advantage. He knows that consigning the devil to myth inevitably then consigns God to myth. It leads to a rejection of him. And if you don't think that you need a redeemer, if you think that you're fine, well, then that's great because you're probably a saint. If you think that you're fine 
that you don't need a redeemer, that you don't need confession, then you're probably a saint. And that's lovely and that's wonderful. Or you're a fool. Each of us needs a redeemer. Each of us needs to be loved. Each of us needs to recognize we're a sinner and in need of God's mercy. And knowing that when we do that, we show such courage. Such courage in the face of a world that doesn't want to recognize sin, that doesn't want to recognize that we need a redeemer, that doesn't recognize our need to be loved. A man called Geoffrey Russell wrote a remarkable four-volume history of the devil. And he noted that the Faust character is the most popular subject in Western paintings, poems, novels, operas, and films after the characters of Jesus, Mary, and the devil himself. That should tell us something. Who is Faust? Faust is the man of letters who sells his soul to the devil on the promise that the devil will show him the secrets of the universe. Faust is the type of a certain species of modern man, a certain kind of artist, a certain kind of scientist or philosopher. Faust doesn't come to God's creation as a seeker after truth or beauty and meaning. He comes impatient to know, the better to control and dominate, with a delusion of his own entitlement as if such knowledge were his birthright. Faust then becomes a prisoner of his own vanity, of his own pride. Faust, as a character, would rather sell his soul than humble himself before God. There's a lesson in Faust for our lives and for our families, for our parishes, for our communities. Without faith, there can be no understanding, no knowledge, no wisdom. We need both faith and reason to penetrate the mysteries of creation and the mysteries of our lives, but it should always be done with humility and with love of God and of each other. Now, when I was a teenager, I was confirmed by the Archbishop of Singapore, a man called Archbishop Banit Chu, who was a remarkable man. He'd been in prison for many years simply for being a Christian. I remember at the Confirmation Mass, he told us a story of his experience in prison. He said that one night he woke up and in the corner of his small cell, he saw complete darkness. And in the midst of this darkness, two red piercing eyes staring straight at him. And he said, who are you? And a terrible voice replied saying, I am Satan. I am legion. I'm here to destroy you. And Archbishop Anichu said, that's nice, and went back to sleep. That's the point. The victory is won in Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear from the devil. We have nothing to worry about from him if we're willing to recognize our need of God, our need of a redeemer, our need to be loved by God. If our hearts belong to him, we've nothing to worry about. The worry comes if we're so puffed up with pride that we fail to see that we need to change. Remember in the story of the prodigal son, a story we all know so well, 
The wayward son wakes up to his mistakes when he realises that nobody gave him anything. When he spent all of his money and he had nothing left, he woke up to his mistakes when he realised that no one gave him anything. We need to wake up to that truth as well, that it's God who gives us everything, life, truth, and above all, forgiveness. St. John Paul again reminds us that there is no evil to be faced that Christ does not face with us. There is no enemy that Christ has not already conquered. There is no cross to bear that Christ has not already borne for us. So we can do it. We can tell the devil to sling his hook and we're not worried about him. But only if we do this in Jesus Christ. Because there is no evil to be faced that Christ hasn't already faced. No enemy to be conquered that he hasn't conquered already. The difficulty is we need to wake up to this. And we need to wake up to it in our own lives. And the way, of course, we change is by using the beautiful sacrament of confession, of reconciliation, of penance. Now, Pope Francis preaches about this all the time, encouraging people to go to confession. He said recently, every one of us should say to ourselves, when was the last time I went to confession? And if it's been a long time, do not lose another day. Jesus is there, be courageous. Go to confession. Pope Benedict called the crisis that we experience in the church the crisis of confession. And he wrote to priests saying, I feel a pressing need to urge you, my dear brothers, to rediscover for yourselves and help others to rediscover the beauty of the sacrament of reconciliation. It's a sacrament we need to use. It's a sacrament that we should cherish. When I joined the monastery, I remember being told that I was a novice now, I was in formation, I should go to confession at least every two months. And then when I took solemn vows, I was told I'm in solemn vows now, it's serious, I should go at least once a month. And then when I was ordained a deacon, I remember being told, well, you're in holy orders now, you should go to confession at least every two weeks. I thought I was getting better, but obviously I wasn't. <laughs> but it's a sacrament there to help us to get better. It's a sacrament there to help us on our journey, to let us become the children of God we were created to be, to let go of all of the rubbish and the baggage that we carry around from the past and become the beautiful creation that Christ died for. So the sacrament of confession. There are seven reasons really we should return to confession, both natural and supernatural. The first one to talk about tonight. Sin aggravates you. I remember a therapist telling me the story of a patient who had been in a terrible cycle of depression and self-disgust ever since high school. Nothing seemed to help him. Then one day, the therapist met his patient in front of a Catholic church. And they came inside because it was raining and saw people going to confession. And the patient, who was a Catholic, 
said to his counsellor, do you think I should give it a go? And this counsellor said, oh no, don't bother with that. But the patient went anyway, and he emerged from the confessional with his first smile in years, and he kept improving in the weeks to come. The therapist now encourages all of her Catholic patients to go to confession. Because sin leads to depression. Because it's a violation of God's love. It's a violation of the purpose built into our being by God. And so confession lifts the guilt and anxiety that causes us to sin and heals us. The sacrament of confession is a sacrament of God's love. He wants to heal us. He wants to make us whole. How can we say no to this? How can we stay away from it? The sacrament of confession is, is God's love coming directly into the fibre of your being. It's God's love reaching into the bones and your joints, setting us free from all that weighs us down allowing us to be the child of God we were created to be. Because you are not the sum of your sins. We make this mistake sometimes. We do something wrong, we sin, and we think that's who we are. God says no, that's not who you are. You're beautiful, you're a child of God, and he wants that beauty to be restored. So sin aggravates you. Then the second thing, sin makes you aggravating. Sin can aggravate you, but sin also makes you aggravating. In the movie 310 to Yuma, there's a villain called Ben Wade, and he says in the film, I don't mess around with doing anything good. I don't do one good deed for anybody, because I imagine it's habit forming, and I ain't doing it. He's right. Aristotle says this, we are what we repeatedly do. As the Catechism of the Church says, sin creates a proclivity to sin. So people just don't lie. People become liars. People don't just steal. People become thieves. Once we allow that sin to take root in our heart, then it will take over. And God wants us to break that chain, to be set free from that. Pope Benedict said, God is determined to deliver his children from slavery, to lead us into freedom. And the worst and most profound slavery is sin. God wants us to be set free. The third one, we need to say it. Think about if you break a favourite item belonging to a friend, you'd never be satisfied with just feeling a bit of regret. You'd feel compelled to explain what you did, to express your sorrow, to do something to set it right. I can illustrate this in my own life with the example of poor Father Stephen playing the organ tonight. I had a beautiful blue mug. It was my favourite coffee mug. It had the right amount of coffee that I liked in the morning, and you could see how much coffee you drank. It was a slightly transparent mug, 
and I love this mug, and this mug had been everywhere, and Father Stephen broke it. <laughs> now, Father Stephen didn't need to tell me that he'd broken it, but he came to tell me, and after I didn't speak to him for two weeks, then I forgave him, and we moved forward. But there was a need to explain, to say what had gone wrong. It's exactly the same with God. When we break something in our relationship with God, we need to say we're sorry and try to fix it. Pope Benedict points out that we all feel the need to confess and we should feel this need even if we aren't serious, guilty of serious sin. He says this, we clean our homes, our rooms, at least once a week, even if the dirt is always the same in order to live in cleanliness, in order to start again. The same is true of our soul. Think about that. We all clean our house, even though the dirt is the same each week. We should never be afraid of going to confession and saying the same old things. In fact, when people come and say that, they say, Father, I'm here again and I'm here to confess the same old things. I always say to people, well, thank God, be more worried if you were coming with different things every week. Your life would be far more too interesting. For most of us, it's the same things that trip us up. But the way that we get up again and keep going is God's love in absolution, being set free through confession. The fourth reason to think about confessing helps you know yourself. We always get ourselves wrong. Our self-opinion of ourself is sometimes like one of those funhouse mirrors that you get in circuses. You can look in one mirror and you see yourself as strong and wonderful and awe-inspiring. Look in another mirror, you can see yourself as grotesque and twisted and hateful. But God isn't interested in any of it. God isn't interested in who you pretend to be. God is not interested in who other people think you may be and want you to be. God is interested in the beautiful and wonderful and awesome child of God he created. And that's who he wants you to be. And the way that we keep that is through the sacrament of confession. St. John Paul said confession helps us to make our consciences more alert, more open. And so we become truly the human person that God wants us to be. A fifth point to consider, confession helps children. I sometimes hear it said as a priest, oh, I think it's wrong that we make children go to confession. It's wrong that we make children think they're bad. Well, I trained to be a teacher before I became a priest. And children can be pretty grotty sometimes. Children can be pretty mean. And they need to learn to be good. If we think that children are just perfect and wonderful, well then we're fooling ourselves. Yes, they are beautiful creations of God. Yes, they are beautiful souls. But each of us has within us the Pharisee. Each of us has that temptation to sin. And so when we bring our children confession, we also help them to think about their lives and choose good, choose what's right, but also 
for them to learn that they can say sorry. One of the challenges we have in the modern world is it's becoming increasingly difficult for someone to say, I am sorry, and for them to change and to be different. We label people straight away. Someone's done something bad, kick them out, get rid of them. We do it all the time with politicians and celebrities. Well, that's the risk they run in taking on that life. But imagine if it was you or me. Imagine the amount of times I sin. And if I couldn't start again, well, why would I bother? We need to learn to say sorry and to have the courage to admit we're sinners. The sixth thing to consider, confessing a mortal sin is required by us, by the church. Now, as the Catechism puts it, mortal sin, unconfessed, causes us exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the choice of hell. For our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. That's in our catechism. That's the teaching of the church. Over and over again in the 21st century, the church has reminded us that Catholics guilty, guilty of committing mortal sin can't go to communion without confession. On Saturday, the queue for that box at the back of the church should be just as long as the queue at this altar on Sunday. I mean this seriously. The queue for going to confession should be just as long, if not longer, than the queue for Holy Communion. Jesus gives us his body, blood, soul and divinity. He gives us his very self. We need to be worthy of that. And none of us truly can be, but the way we get there is through the sacrament of confession. And so it's required of us and something we should take seriously. And then the most important thing of all, confession is a personal encounter with Christ. Remember, when we go to confession, it's Christ who heals and forgives us. It's that personal encounter with Christ when we confess our sins, we are confessing to God. Yes, of course, the priest is there to hear us and in the sacrament give us absolution, but it's Jesus who died for our sins. It's Jesus whose blood was shed upon the cross for you and me, and it's he that we encounter in that beautiful sacrament. And so we should always be willing to go and experience Christ in that sacrament. But here's where I have to give you a health warning. Don't always expect the priest to be in a good mood. Priests are human beings like everybody else. And you may go to confession and you may have a priest and he may be having a bad day. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. What matters is the gift of absolution. Because when the priest raises his hand in absolution, it is dripping in the blood of Christ. Blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now I remember a few years ago going to confession in the Holy Land. I was on pilgrimage and I thought I should go to confession. Good place to go. It wasn't anything particular in my mind, but I thought I should go to confession. 
and I went at the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's a beautiful little church there, and I went to confession, I knelt down, and behind the grill was a Franciscan priest with a great big bushy beard, and I knelt down and said that I was a religious and a priest, which we have to say, and then I said that I hadn't really focused on my prayers the day before. I always like to start off with the small ones, work up to the big ones, you know, lulls them into a false sense of security. But from behind the grill, this voice said, young man, my soul quakes for your soul. And I thought to myself, I'm not telling you any more then. <laughs> and then had to go to confession again to confess I hadn't confessed properly the first time. We can all perhaps speak of experiences like that in confession, but don't let it put you off. It isn't about the priest, it's about an encounter with Christ. And if we want to experience God's forgiveness, then we need to forgive each other. And that's a big part of a parish mission, to forgive each other in this parish. To forgive someone who may have hurt you or upset you. To forgive someone that you haven't spoken to for years. It's the parish mission, it's this time to make that change. Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we are to be forgiven by God, we should forgive each other. Quite recently I was called to the hospital in Chelmsford to a man who was dying. And I was there with his wife and family as the man died. And one of the nurses came to tell us that his brother had arrived. And the man's wife asked me to tell the brother that his brother had died. So I took him into a side room and we sat down and I told him that his brother had died. The man burst into tears. Perfectly normal, perfectly natural reaction. But in his sobbing, he said, I was almost ready to forgive him. They'd had a row a couple of years before about something and nothing. They hadn't spoken all that time. And this man crying, sobbing his heart out, said, I was almost ready to forgive him. Never leave it too late. Never leave it. Do it now. And remember, forgiveness is what sets us free. God's forgiveness for us, but our forgiveness for each other. So remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus is watching you. Not as a spy, not as someone to trip you up, but he's loving you and supporting you. And there is nothing that you can have done that God can't forgive because he loves you. And if ever you doubt that, just look at the cross. The cross of Christ is the greatest sign of love the world has ever seen. And it's that love that allows us to become saints. It's that love that lets us be beautiful again. It's that love that allows us to become the child of God we were created to be. But the way we get there is by having the courage to say with the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner.
as we draw to the end of our time together tonight, as a final prayer together, we're going to say the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Now, for some of you, you may be unfamiliar 